0: The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. Hey, it's Dudley. Good to be back with you again this month. We're talking about something very, very, very important this month. So get ready to concentrate and maybe even get your uh, copy of the scriptures out so that you can see, read along with. We're going to look at several scriptures And uh, it it would help you to maintain it and help you as you understand what the scriptures are saying, of course. Another couple of important things I want to say before we get into the study is we're we're talking about being, this month, we're talking about being aggressive in warfare. And I did a study here a couple of years ago on the invasion of the kingdom into cultures. And it's based on the study of the book of Acts and that's what Acts is about, the, the Acts of the Apostles is about how these people in, impacted by the kingdom of God and being vessels of God's light and power began to invade the culture of uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Rome, Greece, all of the cultures of the known world were embraced by the gospel and the gospel always impacts Penetrates, influences and becomes a salt and light there. And so this would be a great series for study on your own and for your groups. You have both the video and the audio if you want them. The other thing I wanted to mention is a couple of events. The father daughter will be happening in February. You need to be, uh, if you're a daughter uh, 15 and up, you'll want to come with a dad. If your dad can't come, Find a designated dad. Dad, this would be the greatest thing you could do for your daughter. And the fact that you would be willing to give her that weekend is, is really powerful. But what we'll deal with there will basically be life changers. That's the common comment. Uh, so that's February. in the last part of February, last days of February and first uh, March, we're having our annual EPIC conference, which is the best conference going on. I've been doing conferences for 40-something years. The EPIC conference is the most focused, the most applicable, the most insightful, life-changing conference that I've ever been to. Uh, Those I've been involved in and those I've just attended. You'll need to come. There's something for everybody in the family. There's something for the kids. There's something for young people. Uh, we have breakout sessions where we take the uh, plenary messages and break them out into how, this is how you do it, and so uh, you'll need you'll want to come. Alan Wright will be there again. Kenny Thacker will be there again. Uh, J.R. Basser will be there again. I will be there again. We were we we're talking about this time. What time is it? What time is it in the plan of God? Where are we on the calendar? Where are we on the clock? There are lots of folk who are in, uh, trying to entice us to believe that, that we are live in the last seconds and we should give up. No. But where are we? How, and, and can we know without be, being involved in speculation and conspiracy theory? Well, you can. And so if you want a, a full-orbed approach to where are we? Where are we in time? And what does the Bible say about it? Then... You'll need to register. You'll register now. Go ahead and get get that done. It it happens in Prosper, Texas, which is just north of Dallas. You'll fly into Dallas if you're flying in. It's not far, 30 minutes or so out to the the area. We're using motels in that area. Uh, Go online, check it out, call the office, get registered, do it now, do it for your whole family and try to get as many friends as you possibly can. Now, this month, I want us to talk about a subject that is very, 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 very important. Everything that relates to the gospel; is important. But I want to talk about something that has been abused, misunderstood. But most of, mostly, we have have been unengaged in this whole matter of what does it mean to fight as a Christian? What does it mean to fight as a victorious warrior? And what are we supposed to fight? Uh, are we supposed to be involved in cultural wars? Are we supposed to be involved in ideological wars? Are are we supposed to be involved in politics? Are we supposed to be involved in business? Are uh, are, are we supposed to be, to isolate ourselves and just be content to deal with quote spiritual things or heavenly things? Or or is there is there something for us to see about what's going on in our and our responsibility to it. I read a blog by Jim Dennison last week, who said the moral future of our country is in the hands of Christians. Now there are a lot of people who wouldn't agree with that. I do agree with Jim, I think that is true. Because the only hope for morality is a belief in a God of order who creates things right, things wrong, things distinctive, and he has done that. And the only way to live that way is through the power of the resurrected Christ. So we can't even know what's right apart from the Christian influence or the biblical influence. And you certainly can't do what's right until you have been engaged in, empowered by the very spirit of God. So so we live in a day when, when warfare is going on, Christians are being whipped all the time, it, along with the rest of the world. And it's, it seems as though the powers of darkness are having their way right now in many parts of the world and and even in our world, and, in our world in the Western Hemisphere, in the United States. So uh, I want to read a text and read several texts, but I want to read this one, get started into it. This is Ephesians chapter six, probably the most popular text on Warfare, spiritual warfare that we could find. Ephesians, the book Paul writes, and the first part of the book is just about what God has done in Christ Jesus and and the implications of what He's done. What Christ has done in the gospel, in His life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, sending the Holy Spirit, has what has it done for us? It has justified us, it has sanctified us, it cleansed us, it's made us heirs of God. We are we are now the people of God, the, the church of the living God that's, that's astounding the principalities and in, in the heavenlies. And then he talks about how we are to maintain the unity that God has created. But then, but then in chapter five, as he's talking about the will of God for us, he, he, he uses an imperative verb. He says, don't be drunk with wine where an in excess, but be filled with the spirit. Plural verb, passive verb. Imperative or means it's something that must be done. It means that he's talking to the whole body of Christ and that we, uh, we're we filled with the Spirit rather than we're filled with the law or we're led by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. We are led by the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. We're, we uh, are are consumed with his his revelation of who Christ is in our life and the relationship we have with God because of that. So he says, be filled the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making metal on in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, submitting yourselves one to another in fear of God. And he says, wives, here's how you submit. Husbands, here's how you submit. Children, here's how you submit. Parents, here's how you submit. Servants, here's how you submit. So it's still all under that great imperative, I'll be filled the Spirit. Here's what spirit, spirit people do is what he's saying. So as a spirit person, as a person who is now a part of the new creation, you're a new race. You have been, you, you, you have been regenerated by the spirit. You you're a spirit person, you're a spirit-filled person, a spirit-guided person, spirit-led person. What are you doing? And he uh, after he gives all those instructions, he says this Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There are schemes of the devil. The devil is scheming and he's carrying out those schemes and it's going on in your life and all around you. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the people in positions, and against the authorities, the positions themselves, against cosmic powers. These are worldwide powers working to destroy God's purpose in the whole world. Cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a battle going on. It's in the spiritual, in the spiritual realm, which means it's invisible to the naked eye, but it's certainly not unreal. And it's certainly not just because it's invisible doesn't, doesn't mean it's not going on. It it is. And we're fighting it. If you don't know you're fighting it, then you are a victim and a defeated victim of the schemes of the devil. So he tells you, what are we to do? Therefore, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of, given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit for with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There are several comments about this. I'm not going to exegete every every word in here, but just, just to give you the flow here. He's saying, yes, there's a war going on. Yes, there are schemes of the enemy, and and it's worldwide, and it's also personal. It's against you. So he says, because of what Christ has done, you can fight in this battle, but you fight by standing. You stand in what Christ has done. You stand in the victory that he has already won. If you start trying to fight him, you lose because you can't fight him only our captain only our lord fights him and so he fights him and we stand in the in the uh, in the victory of that so he tells you how to stand you stand in your in the truth that you you have that he's given to you the holy spirit has made you to know truth you know him and you know truth and you have righteousness he has given you his righteousness and your peace, the gospel is peace, has given you the steadiness to stand and to run forward. It's the readiness to move forward into the battle. And you have the shield of faith, which can stop any fiery dart of the wicked, which means there are going to come fiery darts, accusations, condemnations, persecution, all of these things come against you. But The the shield of faith can stop them all because the shield of faith says, I live by the word of God, not by bread only or any other evidence. And take the helmet of salvation, the complete salvation of Christ, and then go forth with the sword of the spirit. What does the spirit use? How is the spirit working? He is working through the word of God, which is the, the scriptures interpreted through Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God. Now he says, you, you, you stand in your armor and what do you do? You pray. You pray. You pray with all kinds of supplications and petitions. You pray for all the saints. Now that's what I want us to talk about this month. What does it mean to pray as a, as a spiritual warrior? How do we pray? Why do we pray? What does that prayer look like? How would you apply it to the different aspects of your life? So that's what we're gonna talk about. Now, just general big, big picture background. Why is there warfare going on? Because God has chosen to win the battle that was lost in the garden when the serpent deceived humans. God has chosen to win that battle by coming to the aid of humans and letting humans enjoy the victory. God could have sent angels. He he could have sent Michael, the archaic. He could could have done it any way he wanted to. God said, I will win the battle on the earth through my representatives on the earth, and my representatives on the earth are humans. So God has allowed there to be a battle between the spiritual forces of evil and his human representatives we need to learn to, to fight. We need to learn to fight God's way. There's a passage over in Judges where the Old Testament was given to us as examples to understand the, the ways and nature of God. So when God led the children of Israel into the land of promise, into Canaan, there were enemies in the land and God had uh, had miraculously given victory, but he left some enemies in the land. Not all of them were eradicated. And Judges chapter three says that, that God left those in the land in order to teach people how to fight. Let me read that to you. Judges, Judges chapter three, if you don't have, have your scripture, try to remember that or jot, jot it down. Judges three, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. He was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. So what, why does God wanting to know war? He is wanting Israel to find out how to fight with God. When God comes to the aid of his human representatives, there's a new way of fighting. It's illustrated all through scripture. For instance, the big battle that they, the first big battle that they faced was in Jericho. And Jericho was this big walled city and it was fortified greatly. The walls were so thick, they did races, chariot races around it. It it, it was impenetrable. And yet God said, okay, let's fight together. You're my representatives. I'll fight with you. I'll give you the strategy. I want you to march around the city every day for seven days. On the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. I want you to shout. I want you to go in. And when they did what God told them, the walls fell down flat and they went in and took over the city. Now that's fighting a different way, isn't it? And so that's what it means to, to fight in the spirit is that the spirit gives us the strategy of God. And the strategy of God always includes what Christ has already done for us So so he's teaching us to war. So we fight with the same faith that we were justified by. What did you do to get justified? Nothing, except that you realize by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you were not in the right with God, that because of your sin, you were alienated from God, even hostile toward God. And God opened your eyes to that and showed you that Jesus came as your representative, lived, your, lived life for you, was obedient, died death, your death, for you, was raised again, ascended the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to live in you. You saw that and you believed it. And when you believed it, you were justified. You're justified by faith. So the bulk of the work there was done by, by Christ. Same way in, in, the, in the warfare. We must fight by faith. We fight the same way that we live. We, we, do, we, have, we fight the good fight of faith, Paul calls it. So uh, may, maybe an illustration here would, would help. You All of us know the story of David and Goliath, right? So Israel is encamped against the Philistines, one of the enemies in the land at that time. So David's brothers are out in the war and they're they're, they're one of the soldiers. David is too young. But he's sent one day by his father out to bring some uh, food to, the, to his brothers. And uh, when he gets out there, he sees this giant down in the valley coming out and mocking Israel's army and saying, let's just make it man mano. man let us just do one-on-one here. I'll be the representative of, of the enemy, the Philistines. You, you, you send one man out. Wh- whoever wins, he wins for the whole army. So there's the federal head fighting the federal head. And of course there's nobody that can go out against Goliath. Uh, uh, you know, Saul was head and shoulders, taller than all of his buddies, but he he could he he was no match for Goliath. And so the very best that Israel could offer Saul was, was no match. And and so David is incensed. He's incensed that they're letting this Philistine, this uncircumcised, ungodly. Man mock the people of God, and and so uh, he's incensed. There's a time to get incensed. Uh, parentheses here for a second. There are those today who are saying that you should never, you should never get incensed. You should never be angry. You know we've just been through all the stuff with the confirmation hearings of uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the possible Supreme Court judge, and people saying people are angry. That's, that's always wrong to get angry. Hey. There's a time to get angry, but you can be angry and sin not. Scripture commands that, by the way. David got angry. He was incensed. He was incensed that that the people of God were intimidated, cowed down, uh, backed off, disqualified, fearful. And this enemy was out there mocking them. And so David says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go out there against him. And so Saul offers him his army, you know, and he said, no, that doesn't fit me. So David goes out and you know the story. They, they, they face off in the valley. The, the, now uh, Goliath is incensed that this little boy would come out there with a slingshot and, and he's got spears that are, you know, nine feet long and all that. So David takes off and starts running toward him and takes a little rock and slings it and hits him in the head which can bring to mind some things, doesn't it? Because God had said in the Garden of Eden, when after the fall, he had said to the woman and to the serpent, the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed, but the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent. So here is a head of the serpent, Goliath, the one representing the forces of evil, the Philistia, coming against this little boy that looks like he can't do anything and his stone crushes his head, which is a picture of a day when another David, the son of David, Jesus, would come and through what looked like his weakness, his his being crucified on a cross, through that, the head of Satan was crushed. He was defeated. Death was defeated. The law was fulfilled. Sin was paid for. The enemy had no more spears, no more swords, no more accusations to come except his lies. And so we have that picture of David. Now, as I was growing up, going to Sunday school, they told me that we should all be like David. That is not the right, uh, not, not the right takeaway from that text. That picture is not about you as David. It's about you as the beneficiary of what David did. We are more like the soldiers in the camp. who are scared to death because the captain of their army is a whole lot bigger than us. And yet we have a representative. We have our David, Jesus, who comes and fights the enemy. And when he fights the enemy, the people then, us, was emboldened to go and chase them down and to get their spoils and to run them out of town, if you will that's what we're supposed to. That's what standing is. We're standing in the victory of our David who has defeated the enemy and we stand there. So we're going to get further into this. It's going to be more practical, but just getting the concept. So so one of the things that that God is doing in our lives is he is exposing the enemy so so we can destroy the enemy. You can't fight what you don't identify, what you don't know. So I, I was reading in Psalm this week, one of the Psalms, Psalm 92, and I was reading in the New American Standard, and I noticed that the New American Standard had taken one of the verses, and legitimately had had, had picked up on an aspect of it that the ESV uh, did not. So I'm going to read it to you, and you can look it up in your in your own translations. So so here here's what it says, Psalm 92. It's good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know the fool cannot understand this. What is it he can't understand? That that the wicked, that when the wicked sprouts like grass and all evildoers flourish, it was so that they could be doomed to destruction forever. The ESV says that though they they sprout, they're doomed for destruction. The New American puts a a purpose clause so that So what he's saying is that God allows the enemy to stick its head up so we'll know what we're fighting. And so the enemy is exposed so we can run toward the enemy with our victory rather than fight in the dark, not knowing who the enemy is and fighting the wrong battle. It's why Paul says we don't fight flesh and blood. It's so easy to think we're just fighting against people. And we make it people that we're, we're trying to get rid of and, and defeat. It's, 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 not, it's not just people. There's ideology behind it. And there, behind the ideology is a spiritual force. It's the cosmic powers of the world. It's the principalities. It's, yes, it is against those rulers who are, are enunciating and proclaiming that ideology, yes. And it is those positions of authority that they may have. They may be legitimate or illegitimate. But behind it all, behind it all, there's an enemy that is seeking to steal, murder, and destroy. Now, I want you to focus on that. We, we, we've quoted that so many times inside of John 10. We've quoted that so many times. Oh, yeah, the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy. Now think about that. Think about the cosmic forces that are behind a lot of the the conflict in the world. The the murdering spirit that that promotes abortion and it promotes euthanasia. It it, it promotes uh, killing uh, and it it promotes the killing of innocent life. It it promotes the denigration of human dignity. It's it's putting down the the fact that, that man is created in the image of God that we don't have a right to take that that life, innocent life. So, so there's a spirit of murder. So, if, if you're concerned about the whole abortion issue, you need to understand you're you're coming against a spirit of murder. What, uh, but, but the, to steal, to take away that which is yours, take away your the, the rights that God has given you, the inalienable rights that God's giving, the right of conscience, the right the right to choose, the right to pursue to steal that away from you, to take away that which God gives to us. God gives us stuff, not because the stuff is a measurement of our worth. He gives us stuff for us to manage. And, and there's an enemy that wants to take away property, take away stuff. We don't own anything. If you don't own anything, you don't manage anything. If you don't manage anything, you don't mature. If you don't mature, you wind up being a, being dependent upon the government or the state or some despot. So there's there's an enemy out there that is continuing to kill, to steal, to destroy, to destroy marriage, to destroy the family, to destroy the mind, to destroy sexual intimacy. So the whole sexual revolution that's going on right now is empowered by a spiritual power of destruction to destroy the capacity of a male to enjoy the intimacy of a female, to to destroy the capacity of husband and wife to enjoy the intimacy of sexual union in marriage. It's to destroy all that with all these promises of, you know, you need to get liberated from all of your traditions and all of your inhibitions so that you could really enjoy. You don't enjoy, you feel like trash. You feel used, you feel abused. Which, by the way, is what the enemy's always doing. If you want to, if you want to uh, find his tracks, the tracks of the evil forces of the world, look for manipulation, intimidation, and domination. To manipulate, to to get you to do things that's contrary to your normal way of doing stuff. To to appeal to your weaknesses or to appeal to your vices. To manipulate you to get you to do somebody else's agenda. You can be manipulated by guilt and by shame and by fear and by promises of quick riches. You can be manipulated. Anytime you are feeling manipulation, you're feeling the forces of hell coming against you. And then intimidation. The intimidation of you can't stand here. You can't expect that. You, you, you don't have any right to speak up in public square. You don't have any right to have an opinion on that. You don't have a right to exegete the scriptures. You don't have a right. So so it's it's a threat to shut you down, to intimidate you, to disqualify you. So shame can be used there again. Guilt can be used there. Uh, accusations can come against you. The fear of, of somebody finding out something, some skeleton in your closet intimidates you, make you back off. And so all of, the, all of the intimidating factors that you feel in, in the spiritual world, all of that's coming from cosmic powers of the world. It's coming from, from, those, from that power from hell that is wanting to destroy what God has created for his glory and for our good. And of course, domination is the end result. Uh, The enemy has always wanted to dominate. He's always wanted to rule. He rebelled against God in the beginning. Uh, He rebelled against God in the garden. He tried to get Adam and Eve, and he got Adam and Eve to yield to his authority rather than to God's authority, to dominate, to rule over man so that mankind is now subservient to a force other than God. It was the same thing. It was a spirit behind Babylon who came in and took over Israel and dominated them. There was a power over them that ruled their life other than than God. It's the same way with Egypt earlier. It's the same way with Persia later. It was the same way with Greece later. It was the same way with Rome when when the New Testament was being written. These were dominating powers working through the civil authorities and dominating the people of God and keeping them from enjoying their rights as humans created in God's own image as his delegates on the earth. So all of these forces are out there working and they're working in uh, in various places. But any, anytime you see that those footprints, you can know, oh, uh, that's the enemy there. But instead of being intimidating, or, oh my goodness, the sexual revolution has taken over. I mean, We've lost the concept of marriage. We've lost the concept of purity. We've lost the concept uh, of holiness. We've lost the concept of, of sex. We lost the concept of, of gender. We've lost the concept of, you know, well, it's over. That's not over. You've just seen the enemy. You've discovered that there is a power behind all of these ideologies, and that power has been defeated at the cross. So what if it's been defeated, what's it doing? God has left some enemies in the land to teach us how to fight. He wants his people to get back, through his intervention, to get back the victory that he intended Adam and Eve to have all along so that we are his representatives managing his earth. Are you getting the point? Do you see the difference in just being in an ideological battle or just being in a physical war but actually being in the spiritual battle of enforcing what Jesus has done on the cross. So, okay, what does it look like? Turn to uh, Acts four, if you, if you have an opportunity. If you're driving, don't, but uh, otherwise you might could do that. Acts four, let me set the, set the stage. Okay, so now Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has come, he's living inside of believers uh they they're guided by the spirit motivated by the spirit uh and so it's a whole, whole new whole new world new creation just started in the resurrection and now the ascension so so uh, so things are happening now they're meeting every every day down at the temple and the apostles are telling them about what they learned from Jesus and explaining how the new testament fulfills the old testament how Jesus is the ultimate of every type shadow promise prediction prophecy of the Old Testament. Boy, they're getting it. And uh, and so one of the things that happened is they walk one day, Peter and John, walking into the temple area. They walk by a man who's been begging for alms for years. And this day they stop and they say to the man, we don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus get up and walk. So they're showing what it, what this name is. This name that they operate in now. They're, uh, they're not operating in their own power. They're <laughs> That their David has defeated the Goliath and they're operating in his name. And it'd be like you know, one of the Israelites in the David story of saying, I'm operating in David's victory here, not mine. And so so Peter said, It's not it's not us, it's the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus rise and walk. So he showed that 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 this new life they have, this new authority they have, this new name they have, can put down disease, uh, right. disease just like it would put down death. So they healed this man and restored him to usefulness and he's jumping up and praising God and and causing a big uproar and uh, that causes uproar in the city because everybody's like, whoa, whoa, this name they've got, this authority they have, whoa, this is something. So they are causing disruption. So these civil authorities and religious authorities who are still operating under the illusion that they really are in charge of things are trying to dominate, trying to control the situation, and so they come to the the new church, the apostles, and said, you can't do that. You're causing problems here. You can't preach in Jesus' name, and and that's when Peter said to them, you know, we're going to do what God told us to do. See, we're we're people of the Spirit. We have an authority that's uh, actually higher than yours. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, you know, you do what you have to do. If you feel like you need to put us in jail, then, you know, help yourself, but the truth is we're we're going to do what God told us to do. And so this intimidated the, the, the people. You, you see what Peter's doing? He's running toward the enemy, not from him. And, and so then they go and uh, they go and pray. And that's what I want to talk about. What does prayer look like when you're praying as one standing in the victory? Here, we'll pick it up. Where is it? Uh, Acts 4. Yeah, that's where it is. I was looking at chapter 3. Acts 4, verse 23. So here's what it says. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, quote, he's quoting Psalm 2. Notice what he's just said. They're connecting what's happening to the fulfillment of what God had promised. God promised through David, who was the ultimate warrior, and a prophet. He was the prophet, the king, and the warrior. And so they're taking what God said through David in Psalm 2. And he quotes a little bit of it, letting us know that he's, he's applying the whole psalm. So here's what he says. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, Dash. In other words, I'm giving you part of the psalm, but the whole psalm is important. Now, I'm going to read you the rest of the psalm, because in the psalm, it tells about what's going to happen in their future. And what and what Peter and John and the other guys are saying is, it's in our past. It's already happened. Here's what he said would happen. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel to gather against the Lord his anointing saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here's what God says. What does God, how does God respond to all these ideologies and all this carrying on the accusations and all this stuff? God laughs, uh, you know, that, that man thinks he, he can run things. And, and so God laughs and he says, as for me, as for me, God, he says, I've, I've, I've chosen my king. I've set my earthly king and I set him on Zion and he'll rule from there. And then the king speaks. And that king, of course, is Jesus. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed is all who take refuge in him. Now, what I want to point out to you, this is what you can't miss. The early church prayed on the basis of the fulfillment of an Old Testament promise and prophecy. David has said there's coming a day when the king over all the authorities all the powers behind the rulers, the power that was behind Egypt, the power that was behind Babylon, the power that was behind Persia, Greece, Rome, and all others, the powers that were behind them are all going to gather together in one spot and they're going to put all of their power and their forces against God's anointed, the one representative of all humans that they happened at the cross and the early church knew it and they said, "We're we're witnesses that we've seen that happen. We saw Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, and the idolatrous Jews. All four of them. We saw all four of those come against God's anointed. The powers behind Herod. He was the he, he used the system for himself. He, he had that political deal of just using." The authorities for himself. He used his his bloodline and whatever in order to make money and to to bring aggrandizement to himself. Pilate, the ultimate political compromise. Whatever the people want, that's what I'm going to do. He knew what was right that night, and he didn't do it. He compromised, and so there there's that you know go along go along to get along type thing. And, and so and then the Gentiles. Well, it's the Gentile powers, the chaos. Uh, paganism, superstition, uh, do stuff, do stuff for God to get God to do stuff for you. Uh, all of that, the Gentiles, and what was the Israel? What was the spirit behind Israel? Idolatrous religion. Israel had taken the religion God had given them and taken the revelation God had given them, and turned it into a religion of works and of arrogance and of separation and division, and so that spirit was there. So all of the spirit. All of these cosmic forces had come against God's anointed on the cross. And Jesus, looking like he was defeated, was crucified. But in his crucifixion, those powers were broken. Those powers were defeated. The Goliath had fallen and Jesus had cut off his head. And he has now said to his disciples, now go into all the world. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. It's with the same authority that I was sent, that I send you. Go in my name. Go in my name. Stand in my name. Proclaim in my name. And by the way, that's what the church did. Think about Philip. I mean, early on in the book of Acts, what does Philip do? He's just just a layman evangelist. He goes down to Samaria, what does he do? He talks to him about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. And when he does, people being saved, this whole culture, this whole erroneous religion of the Samaritans was confronted and uh, and uh, the gospel goes to Samaria. Same same thing happens as Paul goes in front of the, uh, of the Roman emperors out at Caesarea and, and ultimately into Rome itself. You see, When you are marching as God's soldier, you're marching in the name of Jesus. And that name, it means his authority. It has authority over every other name. So that's why it's important for us to stand. What does it mean to stand? The Romans had, I mean, every army does this, I suppose, but they would carry their standards along it. They had eagles on, on their flags and they have their standards. And when they would take a place, they would put their flag on that whole deal, which meant that is now ours. That's occupied territory. We have conquered it. We own it. it whoever was the owner before is no longer the owner. We own it now. It is ours. It belongs to Rome. So they're standing based on the victory that they have won. And, and when Paul tells us to stand, he's saying, you need to take the name of Jesus, and you find your place to stand, and you stand. Now, quickly, what did uh, what did this prayer look like? First of all, they prayed to a sovereign God. They recognize that God is the creator of all things; therefore, He rules all things. So they're not praying to a God who may or may not be able to change the powers. No, He is the God who created all things. They're praying to a God who is faithful. He made a promise to David; He's kept the promise. Uh, Psalm two is fulfilled in the cross, and so they're they're, they're praying to a faithful, promise keeping God, and the and the promise is already there. And here's what else they do: they they ask, they acknowledge it is fulfilled, and then they say, God, we ask you to take note of the threat. They just said, we just we just want you to note the threat that they've come against us. It's important for you to know the threat. What is the threat the enemy is using against you right now? Your children are rebellion. What's, what's the threat coming against you? What accusation you're hearing? What, what fiery dart of the Lord, What is the threat? What's the spirit behind that? Is it a spirit of rebellion? Is it a spirit of fear? Is it a spirit of rejection? What you know, what What is what is the fear? Well, excuse me, what is the threat? So once we identify the threat, we simply take... The answer to that threat, and we stand there. So, what was their prayer? We ask you now, Father, taking note of their threat, to embolden us to speak the word of God with confidence. And would you do some miracles? Would you send some signs, or whatever to, to illustrate, if you will, that your kingdom rules? So we we don't always pray. God give us boldness to speak, though that that's not a bad prayer every time because what the enemy's trying to do is shut you down. He's trying to keep you from speaking up. What do you think the whole political correctness thing's about? Hey, I'll tell you an unpolitically correct illustration of this. You know, it's not politically correct to talk about Confederate uh, war and all that because if you were on the losing side, you don't get to talk about it. Hey, uh, th- there was a hero in the, on the Confederate side that was both recognized as a great man, both by the North and the South. And I tell his story not not to get back into the argument of, of, of the Confederacy against the Union, but to point out what made him a great general. His name was Thomas Jackson, and uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson. He was he was uh, a, a great general, such a great general that General Lee said had. A, if I had had Stonewall Jackson by my side, we would have won at, uh, at uh, Gettysburg. One of his biographers said that uh, Jackson so believed in the sovereignty of God that God, that that he would say now, looking back on things, he would say, "God let him be killed so that he South would not win the war." That one of his biographers. You anyway, know how do you get his name? He got his name at the Battle of Manassas when. There was a furious charge by the Union Army against the Confederates and they were breaking through the lines. And Stonewall Jackson brought, quickly brought up his his people and his battery against and filled in the line. And though he was being bombarded with everything the Union had, he would not move. And so General uh, Bernard Lee B, not Lee B, Bernard B said, to the rest of the people, look at Jackson. He's standing like a stone wall. Let's rally around the Virginians. And they did, and it it became his name, and it became a legend of a man who knew how to stand in the middle of the battle. Now that's a politically incorrect story, not supposed to talk about Stonewall Jackson, all kind of stuff, and I only tell it to say, He knew what it meant to stand. He was fighting, but he stood his ground. Standing is you're standing in the victory of another. And that's what they're doing here in Acts 14. The early church is standing in the victory of Christ and they're bringing to bear God's willingness to enforce the victory that has been won by Christ on the cross. And so it says, when they prayed, Lord, given us the power to speak forth the word boldly and do signs and wonders. It says the place was shaken where they prayed and they spoke the word of God and they won. Did you know that the word of God began to go forth, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth? It began to spread like leaven through the lump. The enemies were unable to shut them down. They were unable to manipulate them, intimidate them, or dominate them. See, because the Spirit is in the stimulation business. He stimulates that that uh, that new life, that eternal life that's in us, to stand up and to enforce what, what Christ is, is, has won. We can no longer afford to sit back and wait for somebody else to fight our battles. We can't wait for the politicians to fight those battles or or even our soldiers to fight the battles. We, as the army of God, fight the battle against the enemy behind the enemy, the enemy behind the people, the enemy behind the ideologies, the enemy behind the philosophies. We fight that battle as the church comes together and as we pray, standing in the victory that's ours. And so I would encourage you to identify the threat that's coming against you is trying to shut you down, is trying to stop you from believing, trying to stop you from speaking, trying to stop you from loving, from serving, trying trying to stop you from believing that, that God is on your side because you are in Christ Jesus. Whatever that threat is, stand against the threat and move toward it. Move toward it because Christ has given you the victory. You have on the shoes of peace and you have truth in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You have the sword of the Spirit in your hand and you have the shield of faith that can quench every fiery dart of the wicked one. And you have on the helmet of salvation, you are sure that God will complete the salvation that he has, that he has begun in you. And so, so as you stand in that, we can see victories won. So, So, Would you today try to identify where the threats are coming at you and against your people, your family, individuals, and your family, and your church, and your community, and your nation, and our world. And as you identify those threats, stand there. Stand there in the name of Jesus and say, this is property been paid for by Christ. And as you stand, your very standing defeats the enemy. See? one of the, one of the uh, interesting things is God has given us a weapon called peace. We don't fight to get peace. We fight with peace. The peace of God that passes all understanding. All understanding we fight with peace. He, he's given us the weapon of rest. We don't fight to get rest. The rest has been given to us by Christ. We fight with rest. It's when we are resting in his finished work and we have the peace of God, in our understanding. That we in, that we intimidate, that, that we infuriate the powers of hell. but we win. We win because Christ, our David, has won the victory for us. Okay, let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of getting into your word and studying how you, how you're teaching us to fight. I thank you that you've left enemies in the land, You let them raise their ugly heads so that we can see where they are. And all of that is because you want to destroy them and you want to use us to destroy them. I thank you that you've given us that privilege. And so instead of being intimidated by the fact that there's many enemies in the land, we are encouraged that you are exposing them so that we can stand in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for the power of that name. I pray for every person, every individual listening to this, that you would show them how to identify the threat that's coming against them right now, that's trying to intimidate them, trying to manipulate them, trying to dominate them, trying to steal from them, kill kill them and destroy them, that you would show them what that spirit is and give them the courage to stand in your victory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, well, thanks for being with me this, this month. I look forward to being with you next time. Until then, this is Dudley Hall with Karygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Karygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.